I want you all to imagine a distant land with white sand beaches and rolling crystal blue waves. There are snow-peaked mountains that touch skies right next to boiling deserts. Dense jungles full of life grow in abundance and sea is brimming with fish. All of this on a single strip of land only 760 miles long. Sounds enchanting, doesn't it? Well, I've got good news for you. It's real. And depending on where you live, it's not very far away. With this much diversified area, it should be no surprise that the Baja Peninsula of Mexico also has a deep, fascinating history along with a complex culture. I, for one, can't wait to dive into it. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that delves into the different cultures of the world through time and exploring the different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, food, and fascinating stories, then I've got a great show in store for you. So make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Also, a big shout out to Amel Anderson, the chef over the Merrillist Beach Hotel in Denmark. Thank you very much, chef, for following our show, and thank you to all of our listeners. Now, on to the show. The first people arrived on the peninsula 11,000 years ago in 9000 BCE. To put that into perspective, that was about the same time that the giant ground sloth went extinct and cattle were just starting to become domesticated in ancient Mesopotamia. From what we know, there were two major groups of natives on the peninsula, the Kochimi to the north and the Yuman to the south. Within the two groups, they went further separated into other tribes. To name a few, there were the Kiowa, the Yuma, the Papai, the Yumiyai, and the Kokopa, as well as the Cajun. Now, that's a different Cajun. This one starts with a Q. Each tribe had its own ways of adapting to the diverse ecological landscape of the peninsula. Whether they lived in the desert, in the mountains, or within the jungle, these tribes thrived off of what they could grow from the land and what they could catch from the sea. The Kochimi lived in the desert and were specialized hunters-gatherers that stayed in the same place for a long time. The Kiowa and the Pape lived in the south, where the weather was better and could support more densely populated areas, and they had more of a home, stay-at-home lifestyle. The Kukapa and the Cajun were farmers, living on the floodplain of what we know today as the Colorado Lip River, where the soil was very fertile and it was perfect for crops. For thousands of years, the people of the Baja Peninsula lived happily. Why wouldn't they? They were basically living in paradise. All of the fish that they could eat and a plentiful forest of tropical fruits, apples, and wild game. Sounds like a good setup to me. I can only imagine how they spent their days, fishing in the morning for the catch of the day, or hunting the lush jungles in hopes of bringing back a feast for the whole family. No matter where you lived on the peninsula, whether it was in the Mediterranean or arid climates, there is always something to do every day. After a little while, the people of the Baja Peninsula had developed a working religion and even a blooming art industry. Rather than celebrating a god or a group of gods, the tribes celebrated their ancestors. The shaman of the tribes would commune with the ancestors and lead rituals of worship. Effigies and images were made to honor the first ancestors. Kind of like how the Victorian era royalty would get their own portraits done, but instead of oil on canvas, this was like ash and soot on cave walls. 
I think I prefer, prefer the modern approach, something to really capture my likeness. You know, charcoal's not my color. These images did more than just portray an ancestor, however. They were also used to tell stories and pass down the histories of the tribes. Unfortunately, not much is known about those stories, and there's a reason for that. European contact. In 1532, the first Europeans arrived on the peninsula. Back then, it was actually believed that the entire region of California was an island separate from Mexico, and it would later be known as the United States. This mythical island of California was said to be an island paradise solely inhabited by strong, stark, dark-skinned Amazon women. Hmm, I'm kind of liking that. I guess if you're going to risk your life voyaging across the sea to a place that may or may not exist, you better have some good motivation for doing so, huh? Sounds like they got it there. The legendary Spaniard conquistador Hernan Cortez wasn't looking for Amazons, though. He was the first to send an expedition to the peninsula. It had only been a decade since he had overthrown the Aztec Empire to the south, and Cortez planned to do the same with the Baja people. The first expedition, led by Cortez's cousin, Diego Mendoza, exploring the Pacific coast of the peninsula in Mexico. Though this expedition was successful, nobody actually set foot off the boat. That happened when the second expedition Cortez sent arrived in 1533, led by another Spaniard, Diego de Bercera. No relation to Diego. This second expedition didn't entirely go as planned. The ship, the Conception, left New Spain, which would become, in modern day, Manizillo, sometime in October of 1533. Somewhere along the way, someone must have had some sort of disagreement, and the crew of the ship mutinied against de Barcia, and by the pilot of the ship, Fortune Zumez. Barcia was killed, and Zumez became the first European to set foot on the Baja Peninsula. He landed on the southern tip of the peninsula, an area that would later become La Paz, the capital city of Baja California, sir. Zumez would not make it back from the peninsula, I'm very sad to say. He was killed in a clash with the natives not long after disembarking, but the survivors of the crew managed to escape and flee back to New Spain, bringing back with them tales of black pearls and gold. These stories inspired a surge of expeditions, and the long process of colonizing the Baja Peninsula began. Hernan Cortez, probably tired of other people failing to do their jobs, led the third expedition to the peninsula in 1535 himself. He took three ships with him and landed in La Paz. The first thing he did when he got there was to claim the land in the name of King of Spain. The image that springs into my mind is a glorious, picturesque vision of Cortez standing on the beach in sunset with his sword firmly embedded in the sand. Hey, a man can dream, right? The second thing he did was found the first Spanish colony, a small establishment with less than 100 people. As you can probably imagine, the Baja natives did not take kindly to this sudden intrusion. They were hostile towards the colony, and skirmishes between the two were common. On top of that, the unfamiliar the unfamiliar, unforgiving landscape did not provide ideal conditions for the colony to thrive. 
Less than seven months after their arrival, more than 70 of Cortez's men died either by clashing with the natives or starvation. Cortez was nothing, if not determined, however, and brought in 30 more Spaniards in early 1536 to protect the small colony. It was at this time that Cortez left the peninsula and returned to Mexico, leaving them to fend for themselves. It wouldn't be until 1539, on the fourth expedition, led by Francisco de Minoya, that the same colony would be found completely destroyed. In the years that followed, a few more expeditions would take place all along the peninsula. Fernando de Aracan scouted the east coast and ascended the lower Colorado River in 1540, and Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo completed the reconnaissance of the west coast in 1542. Sebastian Vizcano surveyed the west coast in 1602 but outside visitors during the following century were few. The Baja natives strongly resisted any intrusions from the expeditions, making it nearly impossible for the peninsula to be colonized. Other posts and colonies were built along the way, but they were all either destroyed or abandoned. This all changed in 1697, when a group of Jesuit missionaries established a permanent colony in the southern part of the peninsula. They brought, in, they brought in new crops, they brought in trade goods, which they openly shared with the Baja natives. For the first time, a semi-stable relationship was formed between the colonies and the tribes. As you can imagine, the missionaries also imparted their religious and cultural knowledge to the tribes, and they slowly began to convert them to Christianity. That's what missionaries do, right? But they also brought with them new diseases and sickness. Typhus, smallpox, and the measles all devastated the dense native population. By the time the 1700s rolled around, the indigenous population of the peninsula had been reduced by more than half. The Jesuits by far were more successful at colonizing the peninsula than the conquistadors that came before them, and over the following decades established 16 other colonies on the peninsula. As more and more natives were converted to Christianity, their own religion and culture was either forgotten or destroyed. There was no room for the Jesuit teachings for other gods and customs. Natives were relocated en masse to missionary settlements and forced to forget their own languages and to take on the teachings of the missionaries. What's worse is that those natives that refused to convert were captured and sold into slavery to the Spanish. Entire tribes began to disappear. It's hard to believe that people of the Baja Peninsula lived in harmony with the land for thousands of years, and then everything changed so drastically within a couple of hundred years. The future is always knocking, I suppose. The Baja natives did not go out without a fight. In 1734, two surviving tribes in the southern part of the peninsula, the Pacuru and the Hiwakura started a rebellion that engulfed several missions, forcing the Jesuits to abandon them. This rebellion went on for nearly 10 years and only ended when the King of Spain himself used royal funds to suppress the revolt. Now look, I gotta tell you, I gotta hand it to them. It took a lot of guts and a lot of gumption to fight against those Spaniards, and they at the time were one of the biggest military powers in the civilized world. In 1767, 
Things took a major turn in Baja when the king of Spain expelled all Jesuits from Mexico in the peninsula. There were many factors that led to this decision, but the biggest one of all was that Jesuits were too independent from the crown, and they were sharing that same independence with the American-born Spanish children. Portugal and France had already taken similar measures with the Jesuits in years prior, so Spain was just following the trend. With all of the free real estate that the Jesuits left behind, there was plenty of room for a different kind of missionary to come in and take their place. Before long, Franciscan and Dominican monks arrived in Baja and wasted no time in picking up where the Jesuits left off. By then, there were very few native tribes left. The Kiowa, the Yuman, the Hawekura, and a few other tribes were still hanging on by the skin of their teeth. The Spanish Providence of California was established in the mid-1700s only to be divided once again in 1804 into Alta California and Baja California. That basically translates into Upper California and Lower California. Now look, it may not just be me, but whoever was in charge of naming the Spanish provinces just didn't seem to be trying very hard. You know, I guess in the end, it just doesn't really matter since Alta California fought and won their independence from Spain in 1822, which set them on a path to becoming the American state of California that we know today. That happened in 1848. Baja California stayed with Mexico, on the other hand, and when Mexico declared their own independence from Spain in 1824, the Baja Providence was split into two more providences, Baja California Norte and Baja California Sur. And now look, I'm not kidding when I say this. These names actually translate into Northern Lower California and Southern Lower California. Hey, I guess they call it like they see it. I can respect that. When Mexico became its own nation, the lands of the natives all over the country were seized by the government for agricultural development. This included Baja, and the natives that were once clinging to their fading identities and their roots suddenly found themselves without a home. If you've ever read any kind of history book, then you know that this was not an occurrence unique to Mexico. The natives of North America had been experiencing the same kind of treatment from the British, the French, and the Americans for decades. For the remainder of history and into the present, the tribes of the peninsula continued to dwindle, and forced to give up more and more of their land and their culture as civilization progressed. Their numbers may never recover from all that had happened, but they haven't disappeared yet. Today, you can still find citizens of the Baja Peninsula that still speak a little of the old languages and remember some of the old stories. I honestly think that's amazing. How even after all this time and all these tragic events, these tribes have managed to endure. They don't quietly fade away into the pages of history and they haven't been forgotten. It's truly remarkable. It's because of their tenacity that we know something about their rituals and customs, including those that surround death. And it is fascinating how different their attitudes towards death compare to our own. You see, the ancient tribes of the peninsula did not admire the dead. They feared them. Death was something that could lead to some severe consequences to the living. Spirits were a real concern, and they went to great lengths to make sure that anyone who had died had absolutely no reason to stick around. Though it's hard to pick through which customs belonged to which tribes, many of them did share same or similar rituals. 
I'll try my best to give credit where credit's due. Many of the tribes believed in an afterworld that was physically removed from the land of the living, but not entirely separate. The newly deceased embarked on a journey to a mountain in the sky, but the dead did not always make this journey, or sometimes they believed that they would come back to the land of the living if there was something that they were still trying to accomplish here or something still had them tied to this area. This caused problems for the living. I don't know if I believe in ghosts, but I certainly wouldn't want to have to deal with them if they were real. Spirits were like mice to the tribes of the peninsula. Once they made themselves at home, they were very hard to get rid of. So they had a number of ceremonies and practices that severed any ties from the dead that might have had them tied to their previous lives. Cremation, was a common burial practice among all the tribes. Along with burning the body, they would also burn the recently deceased personal items and any of their other belongings, including food and clothing. The ashes were then collected and buried in the ground in unmarked graves far away from the tribe. Now listen, when I say unmarked, I really mean unmarked. Wherever the ashes were buried, the natives tried to make it seem like the ground had never been disturbed. Even the deceased footprints had to be wiped clean. For the tribes that didn't have the option of cremation, the spines of the dead were broken, the remains were rolled into a ball and buried under heavy stones. That way, if the dead ever did decide to rise, they wouldn't be able to get very far. It's almost the exact opposite of the old saying, gone but not forgotten. And that's exactly what the natives tried to do. It was taboo to speak the name of the dead, since it was believed that by doing so, their spirit would come back. This also included naming any descendants after them. I imagine that you wouldn't find many juniors among the tribes of the peninsula. The houses of the deceased were destroyed and their lands were often abandoned. Any crops that may have been growing at the time were left to wither and die. If anyone wanted to move in, they would have to wait an entire year to do so. Certain tribes had different rules with taking over the dead man's home, too. Among the Kiowa, someone who was unrelated to the deceased could move in and take possession of the land, but a relative couldn't. For the human, unrelated tribe members could take the possessions of the dead that weren't destroyed in the cremation. Basically, the relatives of the dead were in the most danger of being haunted, which is why it was so important that they cut all ties with their deceased kin, but they weren't entirely heartless. They didn't just destroy the remains of their dead and move on. All the tribes included a mourning ceremony in their burial rituals. The Kukapa would impersonate the dead, and the human would gather elaborate offerings to appease the spirits. The shaman of the Kamuchi and the Hiawakura wore capes woven from human hair to funerals. That's right, human hair. Hair that was believed to come from virgins who lived in the beginning of time. The Kiowa had the most elaborate mourning ceremony by far, and it was called Niwe. It was a practice that was shared with the Pape and it wasn't like your typical funeral. I don't guess any of this is. 
But in this specific ceremony, these mourning ceremonies led to uh, be held to mourn multiple people. For all those that had died since the last Niwe, the shaman of the village would lead the ceremony to summon the spirits of the dead to him. Once he was in their presence, he would scream in fear. The point was to satisfy the dead so that they would stay away. The shaman would then pretend to die and one of the spirits would possess him. Speaking through the shaman, the spirit would reveal the location of something that they had hidden, something that had kept them in the land of the living. Of course, this item then had to be found and it had to be destroyed. Sounds like something out of an episode of Ghost Hunters, doesn't it? The, the ritual would then end with a different person called a bull roarer yelling at the ghost to frighten them away. It's no wonder that the Spanish had such a hard time establishing themselves on the peninsula. To the tribes, the worst thing that could happen was having an angry spirit on their hands, and foreign invaders were just a piece of cake after that. The mourning ceremony would continue with the ritual burning of the deceased possessions. Those effigies and images that I had mentioned earlier also had a part to play. Depictions of the dead were destroyed in the ceremony metaphorically erasing their likeness from the land of the living. These ceremonies usually ended like most gatherings do, with feasting, dancing, gambling, and sports. Sounds like a good time to me. Mourning for too long could be dangerous after all, so it was important that the people left in good spirits. To me, a party's a party, and I'm not going to miss out on a good time. The tribes of the peninsula wanted to break with the dead as sharply as possible but they had other ways of honoring them too. The likeness of the dead can still be found today painted on rocks and caves and kept in archives called rock shelters. So while the tribes did fear the recently deceased, they also had great respect for their ancestors. Times of success and strife were muralized for all eternity. After sufficient time had passed, or when all of the close relatives of the dead were also gone, it was safe to speak the names again and tell their stories. Some of these stories probably involve good old family recipes, which finally brings us to the mill of this episode. This podcast wouldn't be complete without talking about food, after all. So, let's go back once more, before the missions and the expeditions and all the what's-another-world-that-ends-in-shun, I don't know. We had mentioned earlier that the Baja natives thrived off of what they could grow and gather and hunt. There were your typical ancient Mesoamerican crops of maize, squash, and beans. For gathering, you would find prickly pears, acorns, apples, pine nuts, and plenty of other small edible plants. Ducks and other marine birds built their nests on the coast, and wild game such as deer, sheep, and snakes roamed the forest. And let me tell you, if you've never had a rattlesnake, it's the only thing that really, really tastes like chicken. But let's be honest, if you're going to live on a skinny peninsula surrounded by lush Pacific water, your main source of food is going to come from the sea. The Pacific Ocean and the Gulf of California boast a large variety of sea life, including yellowtail, barracuda, sea bass, halibut, bonito, and literally a million more depending on where you are on the peninsula. That hasn't changed in a thousand years. So without further ado, here's our recipe of the week. We're going to make Baja fish tacos, and this specific recipe is accredited to Jen Seagal. These particular fish tacos are going to feature beer-battered fish topped with cabbage slaw 
and accented with spicy chipotle sauce. I'm so excited to make these. We're going to start with cabbage slaw. You're going to need five cups of shredded red cabbage to start. Then toss it with three tablespoons of minced red onions, half a cup of fresh chopped cilantro, a splash of vegetable oil, and a dash of salt. Set that aside and let's start making the chipotle sauce. In a fruit processor or a blender, combine three quarters of a cup of mayonnaise of a good quality. You know, I like Hellman's, but you know, you use what you like. With a squeezed juice from one lime, the then what you're going to do is you're going to need the sauce of two or three chipotle chilies and adobo sauce. You can usually find a can of this in the Hispanic food section of your local grocery store. Roughly chop the chilies, take a couple of teaspoons of the sauce while you're at it, and pop these into the food processor also. Finally, you're going to need at least one clove of garlic, roughly chopped. If you're like me at all, you might want to add an extra clove or two, and that's all fine. I love garlic. Blend this all together in your food processor until it's smooth. Now that you've got your slaw and your sauce, it's time to get started on the main attraction, the beer-battered fish. For the batter, you'll need a medium bowl and one cup of all-purpose flour. Add some salt and black pepper to the flour. The recipe recommends a teaspoon of salt and a half a teaspoon of pepper, but I say measure with what you like. What my grandmother used to say was, just enough. You add to your taste. Now, it's time for the beer. You can use any beer you like. I personally use a Mexican beer, but that's really more to get in the spirit than anything else. Whenever you, Whatever you choose, you're going to need one cup of beer. Slowly pour it into the flour mixture and whisk it at the same time whisking it continuously until there are no lumps. For this recipe, we're going to be using a pound of white cod cut into strips up to four inches long. Get yourself a medium skillet and fill it about half an inch deep with oil. Heat that oil up to about 350 degrees. If you don't have a thermometer to use, stick the handle of a wooden spoon into the oil. If it settles, it, if it sizzles, your oil is hot enough. There's a uh, fresh cooking tip if, if you need one along with everything else. So dredge your fish in the beer batter and carefully drop them into the hot oil. It should only take a few minutes for the fish to be completely cooked and once it's done it's time to assemble everything. Now there are no strict rules how to assemble a fish taco but I would think it would make more sense to start with a small tortilla, cluster your fried fish on the top, Drizzle some of the chipotle sauce next, and then top it off with your red cabbage slaw. And there you have it. A refreshing meal with a little bit of spice, a touch of freshness, and a whole lot of tasty. You can picture yourself sitting on a beach under a swaying palm tree as you chow down on these tacos. I've been Scott Parrish. <laughs> I've been Scott Parrish. I'm still Scott Parrish. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. And please don't forget our sponsor, thetailoredhemp.com. For your high-quality CBD, for your high-quality CBD uh, needs, please visit them online at thetailoredhemp.com. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and you really enjoyed learning about the intense and dramatic history of the Baja Peninsula. This show is made possible by listeners just like you. Your support drives the show and we really enjoy hearing from you. Please give us a like, 
give us a five-star rating, and we thrive on your comments. Please, please give us some comments. And uh, if you'd like to find us on Facebook and Instagram, we're there as well. Let us know what top topics you might want to hear about. We, we are certainly looking for new things to talk about every week. And if you want to find future and past episodes, just look on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, stay lively.